All right. Let's turn to Psalm 19. We're going to be turning around to a lot of passages, but uh, you can begin there. Psalm 19, we're beginning our series this morning asking for a friend. And anyone want to take a stab at where that idiom first appeared online? What year? 01? 2012? Okay. Try, try the 1900s. 1996, May the 14th, in a motorcycle message board, user Andy the Pew had a question to ask that would reveal that he was kind of a novice in his use of his motorcycle and was kind of embarrassed. And so he sheepishly asked the question and then added, you know, asking for a friend, wink, wink. And uh, it began to spread, as all things do socially, and growing in popularity. Uh, November, uh, November of 2013, the official Twitter account, asking for a friend, appears. Uh, probably the, the peak uh, search engine usage of asking for a friend was late 2016, early 2017. Uh, should I go to the fire festival or something like that? Probably asking for a friend. Um, but now we see it just everywhere, and, and the idea is you're you have a question to ask, and it would reveal that something about you that you don't want to reveal, and so you're kind of embarrassedly, with embarrassment, say, "Hey, asking for a friend this this question." And I guess if we were really concerned about being 100% accurate in our use of this idiom, uh, we wouldn't be getting you to ask questions from your friends, get, getting questions from your friends, but it would be your questions that you're embarrassed to ask. And so you give them to us. So oh, it's for a friend of mine. It's not really for me, but uh, we don't really care about that. Or maybe some people did that. I don't know. We don't really care about that kind of accuracy. Uh, we felt led to do this series for a few reasons. The first reason, if we're living out our biblically driven vision and mission for the Crossing Church, then we're understanding and embracing our identities in Christ, and we're engaging people who don't have healthy gospel community and gospel conversations, and more than likely as we're doing that, we're getting into conversations and topics that are difficult and hard, and questions are surfacing. So let's think about that a little bit. One of the core values of the Crossing Church is this gospel-shaped identity. Uh, the fact that, that though we were enemies of God, We've been reconciled to God through the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, which is the person and work of Jesus, his incarnate life of perfection, sinlessness, his sacrificial death in our place, not for his sins, but for the sins of others, his resurrection from the dead, proving that everything he said and did was true. And as we're trusting in Jesus for our rightness with God, we come alive in Christ and we're taken from being enemies of God to being sons and daughters of our Father in heaven. So we've been adopted into God's family forever, and that gives us a new identity in Christ. Dearly loved sons and daughters of God in heaven, our Father in heaven. So that gives us an identity as family. We've been served by King Jesus, who came from heaven to earth and humbled himself, became obedient unto death, the death of a slave, the death of a servant, the death of a criminal. And as Jesus has served us, so now we serve King Jesus by offering our lives as living sacrifices it's an acceptable act of worship that we live out every day. And so we're, we're servants of King Jesus. And then as the Father and Son sent the Spirit to fill believers and proclaim this message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, so now we are sent by the Spirit as missionaries of Jesus to proclaim the good news of Jesus. And so this 
gospel-shaped identity, family, servant, missionary. That's who we are. And then that then drives what we do. So we see our lives not as our lives, but as lives that God has given us to be used for Him. And it's not the job of the pastor. It's not just the job of the deacon. It's not just the job of the people on staff or the people who lead or the people in mission communities. It's every single believer in the Crossing Church has that identity. So we see that everywhere God has put us is not accidental. It's not coincidental. It's providential. Every place we live, shop, eat, work, play, every single relationship that we're in and everyone that we're around with potential for relationship is by the providential hand of God for us to be a family of servant missionaries to get the gospel to them. The people that we live around who need Jesus because they are never met Jesus, they've never come alive in Christ, maybe they're just religious, so their, their relationship with God looks like a bunch of rules and checkboxes and external only. It's just routine and ritual. They're just, just behavior modification, just changing how they live to make people around them happy or be impressed with them. Or they're just rebellious, so they don't really care what God thinks or anybody thinks. They're just doing whatever they want to do. So those people need to come alive in Christ. Or we have people around us who are immature in Christ, so they're Christians who are asleep. And so we desire for them to have a deepening of the gospel, an affection for Jesus and seeing Jesus as their treasure to grow. So all these people that we're around who need to come alive in Christ or come awake in Christ, who has God sent to declare this good news to, to them? Look around the room. He sent you. He sent me. We are sent. And so as we're living out that vision of who we are and providentially where God has placed us, we are going to engage in these kinds of conversations with people. Gospel-centered conversations. Conversations about how to apply the reality of who God is, the truth of God's Word to every area of life. And we're going to get into hard conversations and hard topics. And, and we desire, because we desire what God desires, for everyone around us to experience this full gospel-centered thriving. And so these conversations of theology and ethics and application of the gospel come up. Some of them are easier to, easy to answer. You know, you, you may get those. Does God want me to cheat on my spouse? No. Does God want me to cheat on my taxes? No. Straightforward. You can dig into why that's what God has decreed, but the answer is easy. Some of the questions that we get are impossible to answer. Can God make a rock so big he can't pick it up? Like, don't even go there. Don't waste any brain power on silly little arguments like that. And then some of them are just, a lot of them are just complex, like the ones we'll walk through in part of this series. How do I explain racism to my child? If Jesus never celebrated birthdays, then why do we celebrate birthdays? Why do we celebrate all of these holidays that have pagan origins to, the, to them or pagan influence to them? How do we apply the Old Testament? The, the dietary laws, the laws of dress, the sacrificial laws. Some people apply some of them. Some people apply none of them. Is it just kind of pick and choose however you feel? Is that how we're doing that? What's the relationship between science and faith? Can a scientist have faith in God if there's no evidence that's provable with a scientific theory in God? Why would a good and loving God create a world in which evil and suffering exists? 
Wouldn't it have been better maybe for him not, to not do that? All the questions are been put on the city. They'll be in our worship guides as you gather each Sunday. The series is an outflowing of those conversations you're having with friends outside of the gospel community. Maybe they have no gospel community, or at least they have a non-healthy gospel community, which is most of the people in our region. It's not like controversial to say this. Everyone knows this. If you talk to other pastors and churches, it's 100% provable that most churches in our region are, are either plateau declining or fundamentally unhealthy. That's, that's not a shocking statement. Or maybe these friends don't know Jesus and you're walking with them and you're constantly praying for them to give their life to Christ and come alive in Christ. So by focusing on these conversations that are, that, that are happening, that can be happening by addressing these questions, our hope and our prayer through this series is to spur one another on, to engage in these conversations, to go deeper with the people, the friends in your life that you're in relationship with. And friends is intentional because people aren't projects. And people who are far from God, who have never come alive in Christ, who are not healthy in Christ, not experiencing joy in Christ, we're, we're, we're saying bring them into your life and be friends. Have real relationships with them. And not, well, let's see if they'll believe today. Okay, they won't, so I'll, I'll check back in six months. You're sharing meals with them and you're engaged in relationship with them. And as you're engaging these friends, we want to spur one another on to engage in these deeper conversations. Our hope is that we're walking through these questions in a way during this teaching time. We're modeling also for you how to answer these kind of questions from the Bible. We don't want to be uh, a church that has a, a few gurus that everybody goes to for all your answers. We want every single member, every single person who's a part of the Crossing Church to feel fully equipped, fully enabled, fully sent to go and, and dig deep into all these issues, to dig deep, dig deep into all these topics. All of us to admit, I don't know, but let's figure it out together. All of us sent by the Spirit, equipped by the Word of God to, to deal with these. Because our impact will be multiple instead of bottlenecked. The second reason we're doing this series is to give you an opportunity to invite these friends into this part of your life while encouraging and spurring all of us along to do that. So, so this right now, this time, is a huge part of your life. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a part of the Crossing Church. Uh, Sunday worship gatherings. It's our only regular opportunity to be together as one church worshiping Jesus. Should never be dismissed as optional. Should never be done as ritualistic and robotic. Something we desire and we desire together. And so, of course, we would invite people into this part of our life. In fact, it, it actually would be weirder in our culture for you not to invite somebody into this part of your life. Like, if this is something that you love and value, these are people that you love and value, this is something that's a big part of who you are. In our culture, Sunday morning worship gatherings are a legitimate thing that a lot of people do or have done in, in their life. And so to never invite would be, well, why would you never invite anybody into that? It's actually a legitimate way to engage people in relationship. This is where I worship Jesus on Sunday with the people that I love. I'd love for you to come do that with me. And no obligations, no strings attached. So if you come and it's not for you, it's not where God wants you, you don't have to be weird about it. But I'd love for you to come check it out. Those are, those are exact words I have with people when I invite them to our Sunday morning worship gathering. Even though I'm one of the, the leaders of the church, you, it may not be for you. We're still going to have a relationship, even though this is not where God is calling you. But I, I want you to be somewhere. So 
um, we, we hope that that spurs you on. So invite people on the day that those questions were asked that you gave us, but invite people every Sunday. Invite people to your MCs. Invite people to your home to have meals, to share Jesus with them. In a nutshell, this series is to help you engage more and better with your friends in gospel conversations and invite your friends to come and see this Jesus we have so much affection for because he has so much affection for us. So today we lay a foundation for the rest of the series. It makes perfect sense when asking a specific theological question about Christianity or a theological question about any other religion to consult the Bible and clearly understand what does the Bible say and how does the Bible compare to other religious books and how does Christianity compare to other religions. But why would you go to the Bible to answer other questions like we're dealing with in these sermons? What's so special about this book that we think it can answer any of these questions? Now next week we'll be looking at the first question uh, that someone gave us, and it was how we got the Bible in its present form, how we can trust that it is what it says it is, how can we trust that what we're holding is actually God's Word as originally given, and that we actually have a, 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 a accurate, reliable translation and copy of the original manuscripts. It's the miracle of inspiration, the miracle of the transmission of the scriptures. That's next week. But for today, let's just assume that we all believe this is the Word of God. Let's just assume that. Why would the Word of God, the Bible, be the source of our answers to life's questions? And how do we go about getting those answers from the scriptures without misusing or abusing the Bible? That's what we're going to deal with today. It's a question of the sufficiency of the scriptures and how do we interpret the Bible. So, number one, is the Bible sufficient for these kinds of questions or any question? Well, what we're really after is, what does God think about these various questions? What does God think? Especially if the question's about God, but even if the question's not about God, it's just about life. What does God think about this? So we're obviously beginning with the assumption that God exists. If you want to, we, we didn't get a question from anybody about atheism, so how do we know God exists? What's the evidence for the existence of God? If you want to get into that, there's plenty of resources that are out there. If you get into conversations with people about uh, aspects of the evidence of God's existence, we can help supply you the resources so that you can study them and you can go have those conversations and study them with your friends who are atheists or are agnostic. But we're beginning with that already in place. And so the question is, if God exists, how can we know him? How can we know what he thinks about anything? Is that possible? And we would say, there's no other place to go but the scriptures. Look what the Bible says about itself as we'll walk through this morning and understand what we're actually holding in the Word of God, what we're actually engaging with in the Word of God. Now, there's going to be a lot of scripture this morning because it matters what the Bible says about itself, but also because we believe the Bible is sufficient. And so the Bible is sufficient this morning, the, the Word of God and the Spirit of God, to create or increase Belief, faith, life, joy, hope, peace in all of us this morning as our affection, our understanding of this amazing book grows. And so let's, let's look at these passages. Psalm 19, verse 7. The instruction of the Lord is perfect. What's the instruction of the Lord? The Bible. Very good. The instruction of the Lord is perfect. There's nowhere else to get this other than the Bible. Renewing one's life. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy. What's the testimony of the Lord? The Bible. It's trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. The precepts of the Lord are right. What's the precepts of the Lord? The Bible. Yes, that's the answer. I'm not going to do this all the time, but 
just long enough for you to really get it. Making the heart glad. The command of the Lord. The command of the Lord? The Bible is radiant, making the eyes light up. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinance, Bible of the Lord are reliable and altogether righteous. They are more desirable than gold and an abundance of pure gold and sweeter than honey dripping from a honeycomb. In addition, your servant is warned by them and in keeping them there is abundant reward. The Bible is saying this about itself and someone's testimony about themselves is, is, is valid in a court of law. It matters what you say about yourself. And the Bible is saying that this is the Bible. It's perfect. It's trustworthy. It's right. It's radiant. It's pure. It's reliable. And, and understanding and applying and, and engaging the Word of God brings all of these blessings to our life. It's sweet and good. If you have any kind of relationship engaging with God's Word in your life that you've walked through for, for months or, or even years or decades, you know the more of God's Word that you engage with, the more that you eat and ingest and enjoy, the better it becomes, the sweeter it grows, the more it, and it just brings life and joy to your, to, to your soul. Deuteronomy 6, 4-7, the Israelites are on the brink of the promised land, and Moses is saying to them, Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These words, the Bible, that I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. He doesn't say, well, these words, and if you can find some other good resources out there or other spiritual writings or sacred writings, those would be good too. Now, these words that God's giving me to give you, these words alone are the words that you share with each other, the words that you enjoy with each other these words that infuse all of your life deuteronomy 29 29 the hidden things belong to the lord our god but the revealed things belong to us and our children forever so that we may follow all the words of the law this law so so here's the limitations of the bible the bible doesn't not only tell us everything there is to know about god it doesn't tell us everything about all of life what the bible does give us is all that god desires for us to have to understand him to follow him obey him and live for him and so, you know, should I root for the Patriots or the Rams tonight? You're not going to find that in the Bible. But you'll find wisdom and principles to apply to every area of your life, like should I root for the cheaters or the cheaters? I don't know. You figure that out for yourself. You should definitely have a Super Bowl party or go to a Super Bowl party to, to love people and be in relationship with people and enjoy the commercials. Uh, Psalm 1. How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway with sinners or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction as recorded in Scripture. And he meditates on it day and night. He's like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does, he prospers. There is a distinct contrast between the, the, the one who's happy and blessed and the one who's wicked and cursed. The one who's fruitful, the one who's not fruitful. And the hinge is a relationship with the Scriptures, God's law, the Bible. This person who God has blessed, this person who's enjoying God, thriving and being fruitful for God, is going to have a relationship with the Scriptures, with delight in the Scriptures. 
Isaiah 55, verse 8, the prophets speak of this. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration. For as heaven is higher than earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So there's a difference between God and us. For just as the rain and snow fall from heaven and do not return without saturating the earth and making it germinate and sprout and providing seed to sow and food to eat, so my word that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I please and will prosper and what I send it to do. God's word is sufficient to accomplish God's will. It, it does. That's the Old Testament. New Testament, Jesus comes along and Jesus is teaching in a way that is so radical and revolutionary to what people were used to that he had probably some people pushing back and saying, wait, do you, do you even agree with the Old Testament? You're, you're teaching in a way that's so different from the Pharisees and scribes. Now, to the common, ordinary Jew, the Pharisees and scribes were the experts in the Old Testament. They would memorize much of it, if not all of it. And they would spend all their days debating it, discussing it, helping people understand it, holding people accountable to it. So in the eyes of the common, ordinary Jew, they didn't see hypocrites like Jesus called them out to be. They saw the religious experts, the pastors and seminary professors of their day. And Jesus comes along, and he's not only pushing back against them, but he's teaching in a completely different way. Just as simply as uh, the, all of them would say, uh, Rabbi so-and-so, or Rabbi so-and-so, Rabbi so-and-so says this about the Old Testament. They would always quote other guys. Jesus comes along and he says, for I say to you. He's not quoting anybody. He's the authority. Just a small thing like that was so revolutionary that in their minds they might think, well, if Jesus is dismissing the authority of these guys, maybe he's dismissing the Old Testament as well. And he is his own authority. The words he speak is equal to Scripture. And so he had to say in a, in a passage like Matthew 5, 17 and 18, don't think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets, which is another way of saying the Old Testament. Because at that point in time in the first century, the Old Testament, that's all the scriptures that they had. The New Testament was being unfolded and written. I don't think I've come to get rid of that. I haven't come to get rid of the Old Testament. But I, I did not come to abolish that, but to fulfill it. And, and the idea behind that word is to fill it up, to, to give it its intended meaning to fully uh, display what was intended when it was all written down i've come to define the terms for you 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 know the old testament you hear these guys speaking about the old testament but i'm coming to 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 tell you to demonstrate to you what god intended through the old testament through the law through the scriptures and the prophets and he would unfold that over the next chapter of the sermon on the mount as well as chapter six and seven You've heard that it said, do not murder, but I tell you, if you hate someone in your heart, you've committed murder. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, do not lust after a woman um, in your heart, or you've committed adultery. So you've taken the Old Testament, and you made a bunch of external rules and regulations, so it's clearly visible who's obeying the law, who's not obeying the law, but I'm telling you, it's your heart that the law exposes. And the reality is, we're all sinful, and we all need a Savior, even these Pharisees and scribes. They look outwardly righteous, but inwardly they're dead. And the law, obeying the law, is not enough for salvation. You need a Savior. You need someone to pay the price for your sins who fully obeyed the law perfectly. For truly I tell you, verse 18, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke uh, of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. He's literally referring to a T being crossed or an I being dotted. 
God has sustained the law, His Word, all of these years, and He will sustain it until everything is accomplished, the full consummation of the eternal state. Despite the attempts of different regimes of people to wipe out God's people, to wipe out God's Word, it's never been accomplished. It's more available today in more languages than at any time in the history of humanity. He goes on at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 24-29. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the, on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house, yet it did not collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the wind blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. Same house. One's built on the rock, one's built on the sand. Same storm. The only difference is the one who hears and obeys the commands of Christ, the word of God, the one who doesn't obey what he hears. That's the difference between the house that stands and the house that collapses. Have you heard and believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ? When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them like one who had authority and not like their scribes. Jesus says at the end of his earthly ministry, Matthew 28, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. The Word of God is what we're instructing people in. It is sufficient for all of life, for people who know Jesus and follow Jesus. And then a passage Paul, uh, Scott alluded to in his prayer, 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. But as for you, continue what you have learned and firmly believed. Paul speaking to Timothy. You know those who taught you, and you know that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, or in Christ Jesus. Now the scriptures Paul is referring to is the Old Testament. The Old Testament just by itself is enough to bring wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. It's even better now that we have the whole revelation of God. And he goes on. All scripture is inspired by God. Literally in the, in the original language of the New Testament, God breathed. Theonoustos. God theos noustos. Breath. And the idea that the writer of scripture is trying to get across is the scriptures flow out of the mouth of God. Therefore, they have the very same exact character and nature of God in them. And so when we think about, well, well, why did God say this, and why did God command that, and not that? It wasn't God in eternity past just trying to decide, well, should lying be okay, or should telling the truth be what I want? Ah, flip a coin. Okay, let's go with truth. No, it's God gave us a command not to lie or cheat, because God is truth. The command to be truthful people flows from the fact that God is truth. Do not murder isn't because God just decided it would be a lot messier if we murdered a bunch of people, so let's value life. No, it, it flows from a God who is about life and the image of God in every single human being. And so we value every single human being. And He's sovereign over all life. And we're not sovereign over life, so we don't take life. All of the commands of God flow from the character of God and who God is. So this is the idea behind all Scripture is inspired. It's breathed out. It flows from 
who God is. So understanding the scriptures isn't just understanding a book God wrote, it's understanding God. It's understanding who he is. You know what God thinks? We go to the scriptures because it's the scriptures alone that reveal who God is and what God has clearly commanded or what principles God's given to help us when he hasn't given a clear command. So therefore, all scripture, all of it, Old Testament, New Testament, is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the man of God or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every single good work, everything we need to do the good work God has created and caused to do is provided for us through the scriptures. Everything. Rightly understood, rightly applied, it gives us the only reliable and accurate perspective of God on life. It's not that there are five or ten viable options and the Bible just seems to be the best because it's the most popular. It's that there, there is no other option. There's no other place to go. It's the only viable option. And anyone who's attempting to speak for God to tell you what God thinks only has that authority as they declare what God has declared, as they apply what God has declared. Whether it's a clearly revealed precept or a general principle, even that word that someone gives you is ultimately evaluated by Scripture. I think scripture in this situation is a principle that applies to your situation like this. Okay, evaluate that by scripture. Every word we say from this podium, evaluate it by scripture. Every word that we give and counsel to each other, evaluate it by scripture. It flows from scripture and is evaluated by scripture. And this is the only book that it's true about. Even the other books that we say, hey, this is a good book to read, it's only because it is an outworking of scripture and doesn't contradict scripture and is Filled with Scripture. Everything we do should flow from Scripture. Specific teachings are general principles. Everything is evaluated by Scripture. Specific teachings are general principles. If you want to know what I think, it's real easy. About a given topic, just ask me. Call me on the phone. Send me a text. Talk to me when you see me. It's easy because you know me. If you want to know who I am, it's easy because you, you can... Let's go eat lunch. Let's have, have me over for dinner or come over to our house for a meal. Spend time together. It's easy for you to know me. It's easy for you to know what I'm thinking about something. But what happens when I'm dead? Well, then you would go to people who knew me. You'd go to memories you might have about me. Hey, what would Jared think about this? Or what was Jared like about that? You'd have to talk to people who knew me, people who had memories of me, eyewitnesses of my life, Right? Well, how do you know God? How do you know what God thinks? Who do you go talk to? Who do you interview? You go to what God has revealed through these men who wrote down God's words. You go to those who walked with God in his incarnate ministry when God took on flesh and revealed to us what Jesus was like because only through, God, only through Jesus do we know the Father. You go to the eyewitness accounts about people who, who spent time with God to find out what God was like and who he is. This is how we know him. This is how we know what he thinks. This is how we know uh, the principles and the precepts that we're supposed to apply, apply to life. Here are the people he spoke to. Here are the people he spent time to. And this is only true of the Bible. There's nowhere else to go. It's not just that the Bible is sufficient to tell us what God thinks or who God is. The Bible alone is sufficient. Nothing else measures up. Nothing else comes close. 
the only other things that are profitable are the things that have been driven by Scripture and flow from Scripture. And because of that, it's not just important that the Bible is our one source to know God and know His ways and know what He thinks, but we have to understand the Bible and apply it rightly without abusing it or contradicting it. So how do we understand and apply the Bible to life without abusing it or misusing it? Uh, 2 Timothy 2.15, Be diligent to present yourselves to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, correctly, or some of your translations will say, rightly teaching the word of truth. It doesn't say cutely, creatively, relevantly. Some of that's implied, some of that can be done. But the desire that what the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to write is correctly, rightly. And you're digging into the Scriptures, you're seeking to teach it, to be profitable to other people, the, the elder who has the gift of teaching. What we're concerned is, do they get it right? Are they, are they getting it correct? A few uh, verses later in chapter 4, I solemnly charge you before God in Christ Jesus, who's going to judge the living and the dead, and because of His appearing in His kingdom, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, rebuke, correct, and encourage with great patience and teaching, for the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. They will turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths. And that has happened throughout the history of the church. In different parts of the church, in different regions, at different times, it's been worse than other times, but it has always been going on. All through the history of the church and even today, there are professing Christians who claim to value and love the Bible, but then go on to teach doctrine that misrepresents the character and nature of God or sometimes flat out contradicts it. From the Puritans, pulpits, and seminaries who held the Bible high while condoning American chattel slavery, the treatment of millions of people as animals, to the use of the Bible today to proclaim a health, wealth, and prosperity false gospel, and so how can we guard ourselves from committing the same mistakes when we read and attempt to understand and apply the Scriptures to life? Well, there's a lot to this. This is an entire course of study in seminary, books upon books written. But in our time frame, two important principles, context and community. To rightly understand and apply the Bible, we need context and community. Context refers to the fact the Bible was written to a particular context, to a particular people, so it has meaning and application to the original audience that has to be grasped as much as possible. It matters that the New Testament was written in the first century Greco-Roman world. It matters that much of the Old Testament, or parts of the Old Testament, was written up to 1,500 years earlier to a nomadic agricultural Jewish culture. Or 500 B.C., for instance, to Jewish people who were living in exile in Babylonian culture. The situation of the original audience, the language of the original audience, how they would have heard, understood, and applied the text is 100% relevant. We can't say the text means this today when the, to the original audience they would have never understood that meaning. What are you talking about? So we take into account the original context, the original audience, the original language. What did it mean to them? And then we ask, okay, what universal truths or principles can we see in the text that apply then to them in that way and now apply to us in this way? What truths about God, truths about humanity, truths about Christ, truths about sin, whatever the doctrine is, what truths can be seen that apply to both contexts? It just looked different because it's two different contexts. 
This is one of the primary problems with saying if you obey God, He will make you healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. It only applies in places among people who can be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. It doesn't work in the hospital or among the persecuted or the poor. But secondly, we can also help guard ourselves from abusing the Bible by understanding and applying it in community. The community of God and the community of God's people. So we read and apply the scriptures in harmony with the God who wrote them, illuminating and helping us grasp what they mean through the Spirit of God who originally inspired them. So so we're not alone. Even when it's just you and your Bible, you're not alone. The Spirit of God, the triune God is with you to help you, help me to understand, help me make sense of this. And, And guess what? God loves to answer that prayer. He's there for you. Give me eyes to see. Give me ears to hear. Give me, give me a heart to receive. Give me feet to obey. Give me everything I need to, to understand what you wrote to your people. And if you spent time in your life engaging with God's word, you know that it's not academic. It's not static. It's not clinical. It's not like a lab setting. It's this relationship, this reciprocal relationship where God is speaking and making alive his word in your life and you are hearing and obeying and believing, and you know it's filling your soul with joy. There are dry times, but they never remain dry because the Spirit is alive and the Word of God is alive, and it's shaping you and changing you because it's flowing from a real relationship with a real God who's alive. So you're understanding the Bible in the community of God. You're also understanding the Bible in the community of God's people, not just the people around us now, but all of God's people who have ever wrestled or learned from the Scriptures. We have a rich heritage as the church. Volumes and volumes of God's people have written and recorded their understanding and application of the Bible so we can read and learn from them. Now, their conclusions have never been equal in authority to the Scriptures. Because as we've seen throughout church history, everyone has gotten something wrong, which is very humbling for us today. We're not knowingly pursuing anything that's wrong. I know it's wrong, but gosh, it just seems like fun. Let's go do it. We're not knowingly doing that. But 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now, looking back, we're going to say, ah, I wish we'd have done that different. And that's true of all of God's people. We're human. We're not going to get 100% right. God knows that. But he's incredibly sovereign and gracious and kind to still accomplish his purposes through a bunch of messed up people like me and you who get it wrong sometimes. It's helpful because we learn from the mistakes of the church or we see consistencies throughout the history of the church. So, for example, the church has universally understood marriage as one man and one woman. And now in the last generation, to treat Scripture like a pretzel and bend and twist it to justify other definitions of marriage is out of step with 2,000 years of universal church history, universal speaking the same message. And we can debate how we love and graciously share that truth with others. We can, de- we, we can have conversations and need to have conversations, how to be friends and love all people in whatever circumstance that they're in, no doubt. But for churches or Christians who have adopted, what, in their terms, an evolutionary method of biblical interpretation that's the actual name of it, we would say you're out of step with the gospel. Yeah, we we need to do a better job of loving people and proclaiming that truth, but it doesn't mean we change the truth. It's not marriage unless it's one man and one woman. 
Understanding the Bible in community is why we value so highly DNA groups. Being in a group of men with men, women with women, studying the Bible together, studying books of the Bible or books about the Bible together, bouncing ideas off of each other. Yes, it's important to study the Bible alone, no doubt. But then you take what you understood alone from the Scriptures and then bring that into community with God's people. Hey, this is what I saw in the Scriptures. What do y'all think? That's encouraging, brother. That's encouraging, sister. Like, that fed my soul. That was good. Or, man, you're way off. Let's, let's go back and look at that again. Like, we can create this arrogance that in, in the echo chamber, it's like singing in the shower. We all sound good in the shower. In the echo chamber, we're all wise and smart, and we got it all figured out. But when we bring it into community with other people, we're rubbing against other people. All of a sudden, it gets maybe a little bit more difficult. And sometimes that's why we run from that kind of community. Because we just don't want to be that, those difficult relationships. We don't want to be rubbed against or pushed on. Understanding the Bible in community like DNA groups, it's not lacking because it's been tried and found lacking. It's lacking because it hasn't been tried. Or it's been found to be hard. And as human beings in our fleshy nature, we don't want to do what's hard. We want to do what's easy and comfortable. But we grow best in community with each other. So bringing the word of God to bear in each other's lives and rubbing up against each other, all of a sudden we're growing in ways we never would have grown because the body of Christ is coming in with the word of God and the spirit of God and shaping in ways I would have never been shaped apart from that community. One of the best examples of this story I heard from a missionary to Asia uh, by the name of Steve Smith. He was among a people group who had never heard the gospel, he's sharing the gospel in their language, they're coming alive in Christ, he's discipling them, they're studying through the scriptures together. It was a people group that uh, it was not uh, uncommon or wrong in their mind, the way it had been passed down for generation after generation for them to at times use physical violence on their wives. They would just smack their wives around. Just the way they had always done it. And so they're walking through the scriptures together and they get to Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Steve, what does this mean? How do we apply this? And thankfully the Spirit of God told Steve, let them figure it out. You guys discuss it, figure it out. You're in community, you have God's word, you have God's spirit. And they began this long discussion about whether we should keep hitting our wives. And after so many minutes... They look at Steve and say, we've decided that we will no longer hit our wives because it's not husbands loving your wives as Christ loved the church. The Bible rightly understood in the community of God's people with God's spirit will always lead to proper interpretation, will always lead to right relationship with God, will always lead to health and vitality. Always. None of those guys had ever been to seminary. None of them knew the original language of the scriptures. But they had the Bible in their language with the Spirit of God and the community of God's people, and they got it right. And their wives were grateful. This is what we will attempt to do in this series. Go through the Scriptures, or go approach the Scriptures as the ultimate authority because they alone are the Word of God, of the one true Most High God, and seek to understand and apply them in the proper context in the community of God's people to lead us to conclusions that are wise and helpful. But lastly, the last thing I want to touch on, the purpose of the Bible is not simply to be an answer book. And this is not an academic exercise. We are not dissecting the Bible. 
We engage with this book because it's alive and it dissects us. So how do we view the Bible? It's how we know, love, and fellowship with God and his people. John, the apostle, wrote in John 17, 20, I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. This is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, a few hours before he's arrested and crucified, praying for himself and his relationship with his father, then praying for his closest disciples. And then in verse 20, he transitions to praying for those who would believe through the word of these apostles. So in essence, he's praying for you and me. I'm praying for the crossing church who would believe through the message of the apostles. John writes and records that life and fellowship and relationship would flow from the word of the apostles. Later in John chapter 20, Jesus has risen from the dead. He's appeared to the disciples. They didn't all believe. Thomas didn't believe because he didn't see Jesus. Jesus reappears to Thomas a week later. Thomas believes in Jesus. And Jesus said, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Us. How do we get that life? Life through the word of God and the spirit of God. Believing the testimony of those who saw him. He goes on in the next verse. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This same apostle John goes on to write the letter of 1 John. Verse 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, Jesus, that life was revealed, and we have seen it and testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you, so that you may also have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Through the Word of God, through believing the Word of God, the Bible, we have fellowship with God, with His Son. This is not academic. This is not static. This is not clinical. This is not a classroom. This is not a textbook. This is a letter of love so that we may know God and have fellowship with Him, relationship with Him. We may share life with Him. How do we know love and fellowship with our spouses, the people we love the most in life? We spend time with them. We communicate. We learn. We're curious. We're engaged. That's the primary purpose of the Bible in the life of a believer. It's not primarily a road map. It's not primarily a search engine. It's not primarily an answer box or a magic eight ball. It is the way in which we know God. And a lot of that stuff flows from that relationship. It's not the purpose of the Bible. We should just check our boxes. It's to know our Father. John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. It's a relationship. Understanding the Bible flows out of that relationship. Tony Rinke, in his book, 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You, says, In the smartphone age, we are bombarded daily by the immediate. Facebook updates, blog posts, breaking news. Yet the most important book for our soul is ancient. God's Word demands our highest level of literary concentration because it requires relational reading. Not the superficial chit-chat of a cocktail party, but the covenantal concentration of marriage vows. God's word is an invitation to orient our affections and desires. He also goes on to say, Bible reading is incredibly demanding work. 
Yet I find much comfort and hope in knowing the Bible calls me to lifelong engagement. The Bible is not a book to get through, to read cover to cover, and then put on a shelf. Neither is a book to browse or skim. The Bible is our open door to hear God's voice, both alone and together in community. It is intended to be a bottomless, to be bottomless in its profundity and endless in its relevance. It is less of a book and more of a world of revelation in which we live and move and have our being. This book gives us life and it moves and pushes God's redemptive plan forward. Father, we are so grateful that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us through your son Jesus. And you have chosen to record that entire story in words on paper to be translated, to be um, accurately recorded and copied through thousands of years among thousands of people so that today we can know you. Today we can grow in our affection for you as we learn more about you. Today we can be curious and engage in digging to the depths of who you are. And through the rest of our lives we'll never understand everything. We'll never know all there is to know, even about the Bible. But our affection and our joy for you will grow and increase. So make us that people who love you and therefore we love your word. And whatever needs to happen in us that's, that's hindering that, may your spirit of God come today and just break that down and bring life and forgiveness and hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.